have your Bibles this morning, I'm reading from the 42nd chapter of the book of Genesis. If you would like to follow along, two more Sundays in the story of Joseph, and we'll move on to something else this Sunday and, and uh, the first Sunday of November. What a journey Joseph has been on. Uh, a 17-year-old uh, a kid, uh, betrayed by his brothers, uh, uh, captured with an intent to be killed, put in a hole in the ground for a while, pleading to get out. The brothers sell him to a caravan of traders coming by, so they are no longer uh, having to deal with Joseph. They're not guilty of murder, and they get a little change in their pocket. It seemed like a great deal for them. Joseph has been sold as a slave and been faithful to his master and, and his boss, and yet falsely accused by, by the woman in the picture and immediately thrown into prison. He has had one chance, he thought, to get out of prison uh, and that was through one of the royal servants of the king of Egypt, but that servant forgot him. And uh, Joseph languished 13 years until the age of 30, until God caused a series of things to happen that resulted in Joseph's presence into the king of Egypt and the, uh, the foretelling of a dream and a suggestion of what God was trying to do for Egypt and Elevated, the, the king elevated Joseph to a high place in the government, second in command, the vice president, and he would hold and manage, he would manage the harvest of seven years of abundance, and he would hold the keys to the, to the food that would be the salvation of not only of the Egyptians, but anyone near. And uh, it's come full circle for Joseph. Age 30, steps into the service of the king and manages the seven years of abundance. By the way, the Bible says that, that in, in true to God's promise, the, the land of Egypt for seven years produced a crop so big that they finally lost the ability to measure how much they had stored and how much surplus they have. And now it's two years into the second set of seven years, the years of drought. It's been now 22 years since Joseph was captured by his brothers and thrown in a hole and sold. But now Joseph is second in command. And perhaps chapter 42 faces the greatest challenge Joseph has had in his journey with God. I want you to keep that in mind. The greatest challenge, it had been a challenge to survive captivity. It had been a challenge to, 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 to survive in his, uh, in his work environment as a slave. It had been a challenge to navigate prison. But Joseph perhaps faces his greatest challenge. And it's in chapter 42. I'll begin reading with verse 1 and read the first 21 verses. When Jacob the father learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down and buy some grain for us so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with him because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel, that's Jacob's son, were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Verse 6, Now Joseph was governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and asked them, and said to them, you are spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. 
Listen to this statement. We are, we, your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you've come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, it's just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your numbers to get your brother, and the rest of you will be kept in prison. By the way, no doubt the same prison Joseph had been in, the dungeon, so that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. If you're not, then surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving household. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified, and you will not die. And this they proceeded to do. And they said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And they are referencing an event that happened 22 years ago. Joseph might have been out of their presence, but he was never out of their mind. They've lived these years with a, with a, with a uh, picture of in the back of their minds of what they did to their brother when they betrayed him. And we read the story now of how Joseph is elevated to be the man in charge, the guy that holds their future, the guy that is able to provide grain and food for them or not. And how Joseph would respond, I think, reflects what he's learned in these 22 years of hardship. By the way, we sometimes forget that God is always at work for us and that God is interested in teaching us certain things and certain lessons that can only be learned in the hard times of life. That's no reason to covet those hard times. That's no reason to want them. But we somehow, if we're not careful, when trouble comes, fall all to pieces. We wonder, where's God? Why is this happening? What have we done? And all those kinds of things. God does not alter the life we live in and its effects always. But God seeks to do good for us in the midst of trouble. And God seeks to teach us lessons. And there is a maturing process that takes place only in the hard times of life. Only when things happen that we don't wish and only when we're forced into issues and situations and circumstances that we have no control over. And it is the maturing process through the difficult times that really determine how successful we will be for God in the future and especially determines what God is able to do through our lives and in our lives and by our lives for Him. By the way, I remind us all that God wants to do great and mighty and godly and eternal things through the life we live. We're not just here to struggle to barely get by. We're here to so connect with God that He is glorified in the things that we do, and God is magnified, and God's will takes place through the efforts and through the faithfulness of our lives. We're not careful we lose sight of all that in times of trouble when God wants to do great and mighty things as we mature in him Joseph's had 22 years of hardship he's about 30 years old maybe 32 years old he's he started when he was 17 he had no reason to say why to understand why what was happening to him he had no reason to understand why when he was honest and faithful and true still trouble came but now he's faced with a great challenge of his life because now Joseph is in charge of his own actions. All the things that happened to him to get him to this point, he had no control over. 
The brothers captured him. The brothers overpowered him. The brothers saw him wrapped in chains as he was led to Egypt. The brothers, the, the, the uh, buyer of the slave, was uh, Joseph had no control over and all the way through, but now Joseph is in charge, and he can do what he wants to do, and we see God's maturity in his life through these events that happened in chapter 41 and 42, and especially 43, when the brothers came to buy food because they were starving. We live in a very hate-filled world. Nobody needs to have that explained to them. We live in a world in which people are mean, and some people are so anti uh, uh, the things that, that, that are essence, essentials of our lives, that, that it's a hostility that's hard to grasp. We live in a day of revenge. If you don't believe that, uh, take a good look at what's on your television this day. In fact, I think there was even a show about revenge. If you, if you don't believe that, look at the content and the focus of on movies. If, if you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. If you do something to me, I'm going to get you back. If, if you are a player of video games, many of them, all focused on revenge and doing to others what has been done to you. We have a, a, a number of years ago, we had a North Texan in a high level of government, a former economics professor at the University of North Texas in Denton. Dick Army got elected to Congress and rose to the majority, uh, uh, the majority leader in the House of Representatives, third in, third in, 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 in uh, the process of of filling in for the president after the vice president and speaker of the house if something happened to all three of those guys then then the speaker the majority leader would be in charge of the country he's a controversial guy in many ways if you've read dick army's story you'll find that in the midst of his congressional service he found god in a in a life-changing way but after he's gotten out of congress as many of them do he's written a book about some of the things that he has learned and, and it's just titled by Army's Axioms, the things he's learned. It's about 30 things that he captures in just simple statements. Rule number five, axiom number five, he says he's learned, is that if your whole focus is getting even, you'll never be able to get ahead. That's not from Scripture, but it ought to be. If your whole focus in life is getting even with those who've injured you and righting those wrongs, you'll never be able to get beyond that. I think it was St. Augustine that offers some incredible philosophic words that, that, that tells us that the maturity of a Christian is often seen in how they respond to sin in the lives of others. Joseph was in that place. And now after all these years, the, the famine is starting and it is severe. And his brothers come to see him, prompted by the father who says we're all about to starve. We have no way to get food. We have no way to grow food. There's no water. There's, uh, there's no way to uh, cause a crop to grow. And in fact, Jacob says to these ten rough boys, you better go down there to Egypt. I hear there's food to be had and see if you can buy something. And so we have the story in chapter 42 of ten country boys, uh, not, not young men anymore, but but, but well into their middle years of sorts. Ten country boys going into Egypt, that was a scary thing. The Egyptians and God's people were always at odds at this time. In fact, they were detestable to one another. Joseph, when he finally ate, ate with the brothers, would not sit at the table with them because of that uh, feeling. And these ten boys go into to Egypt and find directions to the palace. 
and asked to sign the sheet or take the ticket or whatever they did back in those days to get in line to go before the man and buy food. And we see their reaction, bowing on the ground with their faces to the ground as they, as they encountered Joseph. But Joseph had, had grown in 22 years. He had probably shaved because the Egyptians didn't, didn't wear beards that time. He had a royal robe on him. He had a royal ring on his finger. He had servants at his disposal. It was the last place they ever thought they would ever see Joseph. In fact, they thought he was dead. But Joseph recognized them. And what would his reaction be? What would, you, what would your reaction be? You've, 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 had, you've had one-third of your life virtually destroyed by these people. And now they come needy and begging and wanting. And what an opportunity to get back at them. What an opportunity to tell them how sorry they were. What an opportunity to give them a lesson on sibling rivalry. What would you have done? We see that Joseph kind of messed around with them a little bit. I used to think that, that was just kind of honoring us on his part. I've come to believe as I studied this that it was Joseph testing his brothers to see if they had changed in 22 years, to see where their loyalty was, to see if they would sell their younger brother out again to get something to eat. And all the things that Joseph did in these three chapters really seemed to be to test their loyalty and their maturity. And Joseph had the chance to lower the boom on these guys. I was in the office of a businessman one time in, re, in, a, in a revival in another state, and he had invited me in. He was a part of the church. He invited, invited me in to go to lunch, and I sat in his, this, this paneled office that, that was pretty spectacular. We talked a few moments, and his secretary came in, and she said, there's a man on the phone that's called every 15 minutes. He sounds desperate. I know you're meeting with the, with the, with the preacher of the week, but, but I just think you ought to call him. He's driving us crazy. And man picked up the phone, and and I could hear a little bit of what the other man was saying. He talked about he had lost his job and he didn't have any money. He was about to lose his family. He had no income. And he knew this man always had expanding businesses. And he asked if he could, if, if the possibility of getting a job. And he said, sir, I'm so desperate, I will do anything. I'm 50 years old, but I'm not too good to sweep floors or pick up trash or clean the building. I am desperate for a job and I'll do anything you would allow me to do. And all of a sudden, the gleam came into the businessman's eye. And he said to him, you know, when I, was a, when I was about 12 or 13 years old in this little town, I got a job delivering prescriptions for the pharmacy in town, and I think you might have worked there. And the man confirmed that a little bit, and this businessman said, every time I delivered a prescription, you made me take a couple of products from the pharmacy to go to the people who lived on either side of the house and try to sell them something that they didn't know they needed. And he said, you made me pay for that before I ever left the store. And whether I could sell it or not was irrelevant. I had to pay for it, and it was not right, and I begged you not to do that. I was trying to, my father had been injured, and I was trying to earn money for school lunches and all those kinds of things, and you took advantage of me. By this time, he had the guy on the other end of the phone reeling, and with a great glee in his, in his eye and a twinkle in his eye and a great set of enthusiasm, he told that guy what he thought of him for taking advantage of a 12-year-old boy and said in very emphatic language that there would be no way uh, until a certain place freezes over that he would ever help him. Then he realized the preacher was in the room, and he kind of changed that language and slammed the phone down with such a sense of accomplishment 
And he told me the story again. This man took advantage of me when I was a boy. I, I've waited all this time for the opportunity to tell him what I think and to get even. I'll tell you, it made me extremely sad to think that a leader in the church, a leader in the business community, just who didn't need it, who was, who was independently wealthy, by the way, didn't need anything from anyone, would treat someone so unchristlike. And I've often thought about that man in his desperate condition, what he did. You see, folks, our focus in Scripture and the life God has for us is not that we seek to get even. It is to reflect Christ. God doesn't need us to, take, to help Him take retribution on someone who has wronged people. God will do quite adequate on His own strength, and God will be a great day of judgment as a final end for anybody that slipped through the crowds. There's a great day of judgment coming when God will rectify all wrongs and and there's also the possibility that that person that has done these things to us has found God and completely changed their philosophy. Our job is not to get even. Our job is to never forget how God has blessed us and what God has done for us. And that in itself should make our world, the Christians in our world, a better place, a kinder and gentler people. Sometimes in the church we forget that, and sometimes in the church we can really be hard on people. In fact, it's said before that the church is one of the few institutions in America today that shoots its wounded. Well, not everybody does that in every place. But God wants us to live with great grace and gratitude in our hearts. I want to tell you again, folks, revenge and the concept of revenge has no place in the life of a Christ follower. Revenge has no place in your marriage. Revenge has no place in your home or your classroom or the, the neighborhood or the workplace. We are to live faithfully for Him and let God take care of the rest of the situation. And I want to tell you from my experience, that only is possible as a person matures in Christ, as a person allows God to, to, to help them grow in times of difficulty. Joseph stood holding the future of his brothers. I wonder if the one he put in prison was the one that vo first voiced the idea to let's kill Joseph out here in the middle of nowhere. We don't know that for sure. But Joseph was in an interesting, and faced his greatest challenge of his journey with God. Would he get even? Would he seek revenge? Or would he focus instead on what God has done for him and extend the same graciousness he had received to those he dealt with? And if you know the story, and we know it, we know that Joseph did just that. In fact, he, his steps to really turning full circle and living a blessed life and becoming a blessing to others was that he was willing to face his past. And he was willing to let his brothers face their past. It's amazing. Joseph didn't have to tell them who he was and what they had done. They still remembered. We read in verse 21, 22 years later, they still remembered how he pleaded for his life, how he begged them not to do what they were doing. And yet, Joseph and his brothers, Joseph was able to face the past without retaliation he was trying to find out about how life had been these 22 years. He was find, trying to find out about his, his old father whom he revered. He, he was probably shocked to realize there was another, he had a brother. There was another child born after he was gone. Facing the past is a significant issue. I, I, I certainly no counselor and no, uh, uh, no person trained in, 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 in counseling and and helping others guide them through the difficulties of life. And I want to be very careful here. There's all kinds of help available for us in that context. But somehow, God's people need to face their past. We don't face our past, and it haunts us for the rest of our lives. 
Joseph and brothers show us that there is a time of reckoning in which everybody will do, will give account for what they've done. And I'll tell you folks, we've all done things we shouldn't have done, but we need the grace of God to step in our steed between us and God. We need a great Savior who steps in and says, Larry Weaves has done this and this and this, but I stand in his place of, uh, of responsibility and my grace and my blood covers his sin. We have an advocate with the Father, the Bible says, and how we need to let God help us get over the past hurts of yesterday. Sometimes in church we have great avenues to be hurt. Sometimes in a marriage we have great avenues to be hurt. In fact, sometimes the worst hurts we have happen in those two contexts, in the church and in our family. God wants us to live today with our eye on a promised tomorrow, not our eyes set and fixed on the past and what's happened to us. Joseph was able to continue the plan of God because he enabled his brothers to face the past. He did it himself and was able to mature past the hurt. I'm amazed that Joseph also sought reconciliation with his brothers and instead of revenge. He didn't do that right at first. He didn't say that right at first. He, he proposed a series of tests to make sure they were who they were, that they had grown, they had matured, they had changed. He wasn't trying to get even. He, he missed with them a little bit. I believe I would have done that as well. But he seeks reconciliation, not revenge. Now, we should not let ourselves uh, believe that this uh, enables us to just be a doormat that lets people walk on us and abuse us and take advantage of us. We ought to stand up for ourselves, but we ought to do that in the context of God being with us. It's amazing to me, 20, 32 years old, 22 years or so, more than that since his life had been destroyed, and yet here's a man that has grown and matured in God enough that he seeks their good instead of bad. He seeks their good instead of getting even with them. I, I want to ask you this morning, are you willing to so go through the experiences of your life that, 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 you, that you come to a place where you don't wish bad things for the people that have hurt you? It's a maturing process. It's a difficult process. It's a process that has to have God at the center of it. But there's too much anger in the church. There's too much hate in the church. There's too much, I want to get you back, and all those kinds of things. Even in the context of the Christian church, God, help us to rise above all of that. It's not easy, but it can be done, and Joseph shows that. Instead of seeking revenge, he sought reconciliation with his brothers. And then beyond our hurt, beyond our hurt, beyond Joseph's hurt, the most important thing to Joseph was the well-being of God's people. God put him in a position where he was able to manage the food, and he, he managed the harvest, and he did all those kinds of things. He held the kingdom. He held the keys to their future. What a position of power it would have been to abuse. What a position of power it would have been to say, I like you. You can have food. I don't like you. You can't have food. Joseph realized that with God's blessing comes a great responsibility. And Joseph seemed to prove faithful with that responsibility through the difficulties of his life. And he would sell his brother some grain and ask about the father. He would not only sell him his grain, the rest of these chapters tell us he would, he would order his servants to give their money back to them. And boy, they were shocked as well when they stopped the first night on the way home to, to camp and to, to uh, uh, take provisions and eat something to open. One of them opened their bag of grain and found that it contained its money in it. 
And they went back home and found all of them had, been, had their money returned to them. Quite a discussion around the family table with their father. And it wasn't long until that supply of food ran out and the drought was still on and the famine was, pre- was still prevalent. And the father said to these ten boys, you better go back to that man and see if you can buy some food again. And it's an interesting story for them to say, we can't do that. God, God, you see, for facing their past, God made them go to a place they didn't want to go. In fact, he caused them to go twice to a place they didn't want to be a part of. And they told him the story that the man said, if you ever come back again, if you're going to prove that you're telling the truth and you're not spies, you better bring this younger brother that you said. Finally, Reuben steps in because Jacob didn't want to send the younger brother and said, I, I, let, I let Joseph go and he is no more. And this is his brother, Benjamin, and I can't let him out of my sight for fear that something will happen to him. And they realized they were starving to death. And finally, older brother Reuben stepped in. Reuben tried to stop him back 22 years ago. And Reuben said, uh, hold me responsible. Let him go. I'll take care of him. Hold me responsible and my kids. And you know the story of how now 11 brothers returned back to Egypt. Simeon was still held in prison and came and begged this man for food. And the Bible said that when Joseph saw his younger brother Benjamin, he had never seen that he was so moved to tears that he had to leave the building and go out and cry a little bit. And he finally got himself together and came back and ordered a feast for them. They would eat with him the next day. He seated the brothers at the table in in their birth order. They said among themselves, how in the world could this happen? He seated Benjamin at the last place, and when the food came, they all had a great portion of food, but Benjamin had five times that much. And these brothers began to talk about themselves and wonder what they've done, not realizing Joseph can understand what they're saying. And they talk about how badly they treated Joseph, and they were scared to death. Finally, the Bible says Joseph could contain his knowledge no longer. He cleared the house of everybody but him and his brothers and said to them probably the most shocking things their brothers had ever, those, these ten brothers had ever heard. He said, I am Joseph, the one you meant to harm. And instead of talking about all their actions and how, and how terrible they had been and how wrong they were and how they ruined his life, instead of doing that, Joseph said to them, don't worry about what you've done. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. And listen, God has sent me here ahead of you so that I can have keys to the food locker and your lives can be sustained. The Bible said that Joseph cried so loud that it attracted the attention of the servants of the king of Egypt. And the king came down and said, what in the world is wrong? And Joseph said, these are my brothers from the land of Canaan. And they've come here to buy food. And the king of Egypt said, go get all of them. In fact, I don't even want all of them to walk this way. You send, you send wagons drawn by oxen and let the older folks and let the women and let the children ride in the oxen and get them here. And You can give them, Joseph, the best of the land of Egypt and they can live here throughout the drought and I will provide food for them. It's an amazing story of how God used a nobody to be the savior of his family and to preserve a remnant of the people of God. But Joseph had a part to play in that as well. And it's because he allowed God to mature him. It's because of the lessons he learned. So that when he stepped center foot into the main stage of life, he was not filled with bitterness and anger and hatred. He recognized God's blessing. And he recognized God's intent to use him to use that blessing for the good of others, even the sorry brothers that did this to him. And a remnant of the people is preserved. 
and God is blessed. And a story finds its conclusion or near conclusion in a way that when you sum it all up, the only way it can be explained is God. God at work. God at work when they didn't know it. God at work when they couldn't understand it. God had Joseph in the right place at the right time to be the savior of his family as well as others. And God wants you and I to live in such an effective way that that model is replicated in our lives. We get sick and we hear a bad report from the doctor and we wonder why and what, how it can ever, how, what can ever become of it and, and we get so focused. And Yet the believer should not just be so focused on that. The believer should say to God, I want to be faithful to you. Lead me through this and do with me what you want done on the other side. Because you see, sometimes we survive the storm, but we, live, we fail when we get to the other side of it. And it all relates to our focus on God and what He can do in our lives. Living for God beyond our past. It is something every church deals with, something every Christian has to do with. Because we all have a past, by the way. We all have a story. Yet God wants us to be faithful and victorious for Him in spite of it all. And it's moving beyond our past. I remind you of these things that I think Joseph did to keys to understand and keys to a successful life beyond the storm. Remember the promises of God. Everybody in church ought to have a favorite promise. But remember that God said, I will never leave you or forsake you. God promised, I will always be with you. God promises, I will give you peace the world does not understand. God promises that He will always be with us to lead and guide us. And direct us. Sometimes when the bad news comes, we forget those promises. Remember them. It's a key. Secondly, I would tell you, encourage all of us to be liberal in forgiving. Liberal in forgiving and extending our forgiveness to others. It doesn't change. The, it doesn't change. Forgiveness doesn't change the physical circumstance. Forgiveness might have very little impact on the person who, who was a perpetrator, but forgiveness cleanses our soul and allows the blessing of God to flow through us instead of being hindered by angry attitudes and a bitterness and a desire to get even if we can. Be liberal in forgiveness. That ought to be a characteristic of every Christ-centered home. Listen, there's enough stuff said in every home to cause all of us to be mad and angry the rest of our lives. No one needs to say amen to that, by the way. There's enough things that happen in every parent-child relationship. There's enough stuff that happens at school and at work to cause every one of us to be mean and hateful and nasty if we let it. But we as God's people, recipients of God's blessing, ought to be liberal in our forgiveness toward others, and it ought to start in our homes. And you can say amen to that. Be liberal. Be a liberal forgiver. Remember that God is always at work for our good. And finally, remember that God always rewards faithfulness. He always rewards faithfulness, not in the way I think I should be rewarded. It's far beyond that. I've told the Lord a number of times, here's my problem. Here's what you can do to solve it. As I often like to say, God's never taken my advice. But He's always done something far more greater than I ever dreamed and conceived. Remember God always rewards faithfulness. Living for God beyond our past, remember God's promises, be a liberal forgiver. Remember God is always at work for our good. And remember that God rewards faithfulness.
And chapter 42, 43, even into 44, remind us that life might not be easy, but God is greater and has a greater purpose for us and can lead us through in a way that is so dramatic. The only way to explain it is, but God, He is at work in our lives. Somewhere in about the third grade, I was a sickly kid. I was a skinny little kid. If you don't believe that, my mother will verify that. I got over the skinny part pretty quick one, one, one series of life, but I was a very sickly kid up to the third grade. Missed a lot of school. Had a, I, I went to the doctor, it seemed like, every week. Uh, doctor wasn't quite sure what to do. And one week, I was, for the potential illness I had, I was, I was quarantined at, house, at the house for a week. Can't go outside, can't go to school, can't play, can't run. I had to be in about the third grade. It was a brutal, brutal week to, to, to think of a lively kid that loved outdoors and a neighborhood full of kids had to stay in and, and, uh, and, and just look at the outside from inside. I read a story recently about a boy named Chris at age nine was diagnosed with a far worse thing than that. He had a severe case of mononucleosis and several things that go along with that. And the doctor said at age nine, I think the best thing you can do for your health and for the health of your son, parents, is that you keep him in the house all summer long. He gets out of school on the last day of school with all the joy and excitement, take him home. And he doesn't come outside again until school starts in September. Don't go, he doesn't go check the mail. He doesn't walk the dog in the backyard. He doesn't just avoid people. He stays inside. And the parents wonder how in the world they all would keep from going crazy. Well, it was discouraging to say the least, and, and Chris and his parents went through all those kinds of things, but somehow Chris's father believed that, that maybe he could learn something and learn something new. He, uh, uh, Chris's father was a believer and, and, and had that centered in his home, a believer in God, and he tried to think of what, might, what he might could do. The dad was a, was a, was a, played the guitar for fun. He was a, that was his hobby. That was his number one uh, thing that he liked to do. And he said, well, maybe I'll just teach Chris how to play the guitar this summer. By the way, Chris had never expressed an interest in knowing how to play the guitar. Daddy came up with what really is a brilliant idea. He bought Chris a guitar the next day, and he said, every morning before I go to work, I'm going to teach you one set of notes or one technique. I'm going to teach you one thing. And, and you practice that one thing all day and the last thing we do before we go to bed, we'll get our guitars together and we'll play together and you can show me what you've done to, to this. He didn't assign him a 30-minute practice time a day. He didn't say you have to practice an hour. He just said, it's yours to, to do. And, and Chris would pick that guitar up in the morning and he would practice about five minutes and he'd put it down and a few hours later pick it up again and, and that would go on. And, and, and it seemed that though Chris had quite a knack for that. The next day, the father would teach him a, a, another technique, a companion to the first day and so on. And they built that, that kind of stuff. By the end of the summer, Chris was playing songs he heard off the radio. Willie Nelson was one of his favorites. I'm not sure that fit with the Christian uh, motif, but he liked playing Willie, and he could replicate the songs that were on. He also began to write songs during that period of time, a nine-year-old writing songs for God. Well, he continued that on through the teenage years. The next decade was continued to play and continued to write when, his, when he was unquarantined, got back into school and life and Little League Baseball and all the things uh, young boys do. But he continued to pick up the guitar and play and write. He even had some of the local bands playing some of his songs. And by the time he reached age 20, he was leading worship in his own church with a guitarist's instrument. The father was amazed. Over the next two decades, he would continue to be a prolific songwriter. 
and by the end of the third decade, he is considered to be the most widely sung songwriter in the world today. Songs like Great is Our God, songs like Holy is the Lord, songs like Jesus the Messiah, Chris Tomlin is his name, and his, his, his connection with a vocation to shake his world for God began as a nine-year-old boy with the worst news he could ever experience. you got to stay in the house all summer long. And yet, God was at work. God was at work in a mighty way. God took the little faithfulness of his father and turned it into something great. And Chris Tomlin would tell you on this side of it, the summer of quarantine might have been the best months of his young life because of what he learned in the storm and what God was able to do with him. I want to encourage you today, folks. I want to encourage you to face your greatest challenge, not with revenge, but with reconciliation. I want you to encourage you to let God help you get beyond your past. I want to encourage you to grow a maturity beyond the hurt that has sometimes so paralyzes us. And Joseph is our example. And the good news I have for you is that the same God that did that for Joseph is still the God we serve today. And we have a great future in spite of life. We have a great future in spite of other people. We have a great future in spite of those things we don't want to deal with. Because God is our God. His grace is extended to us. And He's always at work for us. And God is always doing more in our lives than we ever conceived Him to be able to do. When Joseph faced those no good ten brothers. By the way, the Bible didn't say that. That's my East Texan take on it. When Joseph faced those no good brothers, he sought their good. He sought reconciliation. He sought to be the man God had for him to be and, and to be responsible with the place God had blessed him with. May it be so in our lives as well. And everyone says, Amen. Our Father, we are thankful this morning for the opportunity to be in church and to look in the pages of your word, to look deeply into the pages and realize a man that had every reason to be angry so recognized your blessing and pass that on to others. May we be that person this week. We ask you to guide our lives. We ask you to help us. We ask you to move beyond what the enemy would do to us and, and the, the batted attitudes we might be tempted to cling to. Help us, Lord, because we are recipients of your great, amazing grace to pass that on to others. We ask you to guide us and bless us this week. In your name we pray, amen and amen. And you are dismissed. <laughs>